Hi, this is Carol Kirshner, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, episode 54 for Friday, April 20th, 2012. Well, today I'm so pleased to bring you an interview with author, educator, career coach, Carol Kirshner, who is incidentally the author of Hollywood Game Plan, a book that I would highly, highly recommend. My old Bible in the early 90s for Hollywood was How to Make It in Hollywood by Linda Buzzell, and Hollywood Game Plan is today's book for that same kind of thing, for advice on how to break into the industry and also how to get ahead. Highly, highly recommended. I'll tell you a little bit more about Carol in a bit. First, a, little, a few news items. One, well, not exactly news, but uh, I do want to remind you that there are lots of great resources at the tvwriterpodcast.com site, and one of them is a database of TV writers on Twitter that is over 900 writers and continues to climb. So definitely check that out at tvwriterpodcast.com. There's links to free scripts that you can download. There are many other helpful resources, including over 50 interviews with working writers. So please check those out. You can follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones is my handle, and I would love to connect with you. But on to Carol Kirshner, a bit, little bit about her. She has worked as a senior level television executive for 16 years. Her posts at CBS and as vice president of television at Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment have given her an insider's angle on how to get in, move up, and sell projects. She helped develop award-winning shows like Murphy Brown, Designing Women, and Steven Spielberg Presents Tiny Toon Adventures. She is also a respected presenter and educator through USC's School of Cinematic Arts and UCLA Extension, among others. Carol is the creator of the CBS Diversity Institute's Writers Mentoring Program. She also collaborated with writer-producer Jeffrey Melvoin to develop the curriculum for the well-known Writers Guild of America tra uh, Showrunner Training Program. And as the director, she oversees this program. A regular entertainment industry speaker, Ms. Kirshner leads seminars on how to succeed in Hollywood, including strategic networking, pitching, and self-promotion for creative professionals who shy away from promoting themselves. Tsk, tsk. <laughs> Through her career coaching practice, Park on the Lot, she consults with both Hollywood beginners who need a roadmap on breaking in, and as well as seasoned writers, executives, and other professionals who wish to move up and go bigger. Her book, Hollywood Game Plan, How to Land a Job in Film, TV, and Digital Entertainment hit the stores March 2012, and again, I highly recommend it. You can get it through the bookstore at tvwriterpodcast.com. Just click on the store link, and, uh, and buying that book through the site is a great way to support the podcast. But now on to my tremendously helpful interview with Carol Kirshner. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with author, educator, and career coach, Carol Kirshner. How are you doing, Carol? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I, I have to say, I absolutely loved Hollywood Game Plan. Thank you. You know that uh, that I was a big fan and still am a big fan of Linda Buzzell's book, How to Make It in Hollywood. It was my Bible in the early 90s. And, uh, yeah. But unfortunately, it's getting sorely out of date, and your book is a very, very welcome book on my shelf. Well, thank you. That's a high compliment, because I, I think Linda's book is terrific, and I'm hoping to help people today the way that she did in the 90s. Very, very cool. And we will get to your book. I'm dying to talk about it. But uh, first of all, we, <laughs> we want to talk a little bit, a bit about you and how you sure. um, got into the industry and, and made it through the ranks yourself. So wh uh, where did you grow up and, and when did you decide that you wanted to be in, in film and TV? Well, it's interesting. I grew up in Los Angeles, but knew absolutely nobody in, in television or in the entertainment industry at all. And what I did is I went to college and was going to go to law school and then decided, no, that was a pretty boring idea, but really liked English and had an English background and 
figured that what I would do is teach English as a second language. Mm. Again, I never had any aspirations about the entertainment industry. I was working as a waitress and then figured I could probably get a little bit better of a job than a waitress. And I got a job as an assistant at a museum, an assistant to the director. Mm-hmm. And I loved that job. I did a great job as her assistant. And one of the volunteers at the museum said, you know what, you are really fun to be with and you do great work. I have a friend that's starting a production company. Would you be interested in maybe helping them? They're looking for an assistant. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine had said about a month earlier, you know, they have this thing at the comedy store called Open Mic Night. You should go and try that out. And I said, okay, I'd like to make people laugh. We'll Mm -hmm. see. And I went and I did five minutes and I, I was pretty good. (laughs) and people laughed and I was amazed and then I kept going and I got time slots and I got better time slots and so I decided I was going to be a a very famous and rich stand-up comic Uh so when this woman said do you want to be an assistant I first thing I said to her is well thank you very much I said kind of condescendingly but I'm going to be famous (laughs) and then I came to my senses the next day and I said well I would love to meet them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I ended up, she introduced me to this guy, and he, we had a very nice interview. I made him laugh, which is always a plus. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to New York tomorrow morning. I'll be back in a week. Can you please do coverage on these scripts? And I said, sure. <laughs> and then as I was walking my car, I said, what the heck is coverage? I have no idea. So I called everybody that I knew, and I finally found out that coverage is like doing almost a book report, mm-hmm. showing you know what's good, what doesn't work. And I stayed up all night to do the coverage, and I didn't do a good job because I don't know how to do it, but I didn't at the time. But I went, I drove to his house in the Hollywood Hills at five o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and I put the coverage on his doorstep, and when he left to get the cab in the morning to go to New York. He obviously, you know, had a trip over it. Uh He called me from New York and said, you know, I was considering other people, but when I saw what you did and that you stayed up all night, you're who I want. Wow. So I got that job and it was incredible. I set up the office. I picked up his laundry. I dog sat. I house sat. I did whatever needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And, They introduced me to writers and directors and producers, and we worked on scripts. And I seemed to have a knack during that time period of coming up with ideas for TV movies. Mm -hmm. So three of the ideas I had, we made into TV movies. And so I was able to, to move up the ranks in this company that, you know, that they started and I worked in, and I was director of development for them, mm-hmm. and it was a fantastic job, but I realized that there was a feeling I was never going to get any farther ahead than being director of development, mm-hmm. because their names were Henderson Hirsch, it was Henderson Hirsch Productions, and mm-hmm. it was never going to be Henderson Hirsch Kirschner. <laughs> so I activated what I called a networking, it was a campaign. It was like a, it was like a battle plan. Mm -hmm. And everybody I had met, I took them out for coffee or I came in and I met with them in their office and I told them that I was looking to make a change, that I loved the work I had, but that I wanted to do something new. And I had probably 30 or 40 people in Hollywood keeping their ear open for me, mm-hmm. and a job opportunity opened up at CBS in comedy development, and because I'd been a stand-up, I had a real shot at it, and, and I have to put in a plug for affirmative action, because if the company hadn't said you need to hire a woman, mm-hmm. then it would have been another white guy from USC that got that job, because there was a long line of them that had it wow. before me. But that enabled me to get in the door. It was still incredibly competitive. But I got in, and being at the network was amazing. I would say that in the four years that I was there, I probably heard close to 3,000 pitches. Wow. Bought 50, 50, 400 scripts, and was involved in making 40 
pilots and 10 series. Wow. And, you know, when you're at the network, people, and worked with really top drawer people. Diane English, we worked with her on Murphy Brown, Linda Ludworth on Designing Women, a lot of incredibly talented and sought-after writer-producers. Mm-hmm. And I thought you couldn't do any better than being at the network mm-hmm. until I got a call from Amblin, from Steven Spielberg's <laughs> company. Yeah. And they were looking for somebody to head their new television division. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that would be a pretty cool job. <laughs> and went in for an interview and ended up talking to Kathleen Kennedy, who wow. ran his company. And we talked for about an hour and a half. And I ended up getting that job delightfully, amazingly, and had the incredible experience of working for what is sort of arguably Hollywood royalty. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought working at the network, people wanted to be your best friend (laughs) until I got to Amblin when everybody wanted to be your best friend. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was incredible to work with Steven when he was interested in something. If he wasn't interested in it, you know, you just didn't have a shot. But when he was, his eyes would light up. He would be like a little boy in the meetings, in this big conference room, and he would get so excited about the material. And we did Tiny Tunes while I was there, which was a wonderful show. Mm -hmm. And from there, I ended up starting the U.S division of an English production company and did a show called Reboot, which was the first fully computer animated series on U.S. television Mm -hmm. and went to work at Gaumont following that and did the first La Femme Nikita and then worked for Canal Plus, helping them to work on a new kind of show that included real-time performance animation. You know, the guys with the suits with the dots on Mm -hmm. That's what we were doing, and we were developing television series using that, but it was just sort of ahead of its time at the time. Anyway, so then my daughter was born. This may be more information than you needed, (laughs) and I decided that I was done being an executive and became a consultant instead because I wanted to spend time with her. Mm -hmm. Started teaching. I taught at UCLA. I taught at USC School of Cinematic Arts, and around that time, CBS approached me and asked me if I would, in conjunction with the Writers Guild, do a all-day workshop for writers who had been on shows that had gotten canceled and were having a hard time getting back into the business. Mm. So I did a full seminar, a full-day seminar. There were 500 people. Wow. And it was, it was extremely well-received. It, and it was something we did the next year, and there were 700 people. Oh, my goodness. And I said to my colleague at CBS, I said, this is the most fun that I've had because I could be a stand-up comic but still help people mm. kind of performing. And, and that was my first workshop that I did. And he said, yes, why don't we do this at CBS? And so I created the writer's mentoring program for the CBS Diversity Institute. Mm-hmm. We're going, we're in year nine of that. Wow. And because of that success, I was asked by the Writers Guild to collaborate with Jeff Melvoin, who is the writer-producer whose brainchild the showrunner program is. Mm -hmm. And I worked with him to help develop the curriculum for the program, which is now in its seventh year. And we have 10 people who've gone through the program that have created their own shows. Wow. Many of which are still on the air. And then along the way, I've been doing workshops for different organizations and teaching people how you break into the business, teaching writers about networking and, as you and I were talking about, positioning and branding yourself. And I have a private consulting practice for people. It's writers and producers, executives, other professionals that are ready to take their career to the next level. I work with them one-on-one. And then I wrote this book, which was <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. Again, probably more information than you were looking for, but that is the whole story. No, that's that, that's great stuff. Great stuff. And and so, so tell me a little bit more about how, 
um, when you first got the idea to the to do the book and and what your thought process was in uh, in getting it done. Yes, I can I can tell you exactly the moment that I had the first idea for this book. Mm-hmm. I was having lunch with one of the top literary managers in the business, and we were talking about CBS and we were talking about some other things, and the conversation moved to his assistant. And he was saying how hard it was to find people who would work and do what he asked them to do. Mm-hmm. He would ask his assistant to get him a cup of coffee, and she would roll her eyes. Wow. He would ask the receptionist to bring him scripts, you know, to, that, that came the mail. Yeah. <laughs> and she... She would do it, but then after about three months, they wanted to talk to him about when they were going to get promoted. Mm -hmm. And he said he used to find the people to promote within his company, the people he wanted to groom, through that entry-level position of assistants and and receptionists. And he said he hadn't found anybody in three years that he thought was had the right work ethic and attitude. And I realized, and I was then started talking to some other people. And that was the case all over town, was that people who were just breaking into the business had this sense of entitlement. Hmm. And it was annoying. And no matter how talented they were, people didn't want to move them up because they were sort of self-centered and felt things were beneath them. So the purpose of the book originally was to help people, give them the inside information that if you can just get past the entitled quality, mm-hmm. you really have a shot because that's who you're competing with. And somebody who has a great attitude is going to really move up and succeed. And that was that was the genesis of it. But what the other part of it was, was that as I was coming up, you know, when I said I, I launched that campaign to get to get my next job, mm-hmm. I I didn't know anybody who would sort of tell me what the unwritten rules were. Mm. But there's plenty of them. There's rules of engagement in Hollywood, yeah. and you need to know what they are. And I sort of did it by trial and error. And I remember thinking, you know, sometime, at some point, I'm going to share this information with people. So they, so they have a pretty straightforward kind of step-by-step approach to how you do this, and they won't have to flail around and make the mistakes that I made. So that's how it came about. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how much do you think that's just the me generation, and what what other factors do you think there are in why this has been produced? Because I know 15 years ago that wasn't the case, and yet I've seen the exact same thing here in Toronto where new entry-level people coming in, it, it seemed like they're so entitled and so so much yeah. looking, looking for what you can do for them rather than what they can do for you. I have a theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is my theory. Yeah. The kids that are coming into the business now who are in their 20s, they grew up with doting parents who did everything for them. Mm-hmm. Every time they played a game, they won an award. Everything they did was fabulous. Everybody was asking them how they felt all the time. And if they didn't feel great, then they took care of them. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the generation, their parents, they worked really hard. And they thought, you know what? My kid's not going to have to do that. And we're going to talk a lot about feelings and how you feel about things. And the parents took care of everything. I did a program at USC for writers. It was actually very successful. It was the assistant training program for television. Mm -hmm. Of the eight people that went through my program, seven of them got jobs within two months. Mm -hmm. And when I was taking, and, and I did that with Cam Miller, a dear friend of mine, and when we were doing interviews of who we were going to get into the program, a mother called me of one of the graduate students at USC no. to say, my son would be great in your program. No. I promise you that happened. And I thought, oh, my goodness. As <laughs> if I would ever bring her son into the program. But that's what we're dealing with. You, you've heard the term helicopter parents that yeah. hover. Yeah. 
I think that so many of the kids did not have to go out and work. They did not have to put themselves out, and they were used to being pampered. Now, here's the exception. I work in diversity, mm-hmm. and and I taught at Cal State, California State University, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and a number of students in my classes there, they were their first person in their family to go to college, Wow! and their work ethic is phenomenal. Absolutely, it's not every single person, but they come at it in a different way. They're not entitled. Mm. They know that you do whatever it is that has to be done. And for the kids, especially, again, a lot of kids from USC, there's people in the business that don't want to interview them because that sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. Again, not everybody, not everybody at all, but anybody who wants to break in. And, you know, it's it's true for writers, too, mm-hmm. is having the attitude of, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, I've worked with literally hundreds of writers, and writers who can hear notes, not always take all the notes, but who can hear them and say, let me think about that. Yeah. And who say, you know what, whatever needs to happen, we'll get the job done. Yeah. Get the job done. That is a pleasure to, to work with. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and I think you you even mentioned in, just in passing about your own story about how you did the these things for your the, your boss's dog. Like <laughs> there was nothing there was nothing beneath you, and nothing. And I know a huge difference for me is the the taking ownership, like. You know, yeah. and I and I've been I've been in the industry for some time now. I've got credits on 170 television episodes. Wow! And yet I'll still put in a 130 hour week. Yeah. And nobody asks me to do it. I just do it because I know I need to do this to make the deadline. And I was just going to say that is the difference between the people who succeed and the people who who exist under the category of life is too short. Mm-hmm. If you have the deliver 120% work ethic, that's why people will hire you over and over and over again, because they know you'll do the job, you're not going to complain, you'll do what it takes and then some. And that's exactly what separates the people who make it from those that don't, in addition to talent. So... I think it's very important to establish this. You you mentioned close to the beginning of the book how um, there's a difference between somebody who well, basically you say maybe this industry isn't for you, um, and and that's totally fair. And maybe it isn't. And 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 I think a lot of your book is a reality check of you will have to go through this if you really want to make it in the in the industry. Um, but how how much do you think? Like say for instance, somebody did grow up with helicopter parents, and they re- and they come to a realization. Wait a second, I've got to I've I have this entitled attitude that they're talking about. What can mm-hmm. that, that person do to change it? That is a great question. I think that understanding it is the very first step. You know, self awareness, because if you know that that is your biggest hurdle to start with then you practice. The, mm-hmm. if, if your first instinct, here's what you do. Here's some very specific guidelines. When people ask you what you want to do, you say in the beginning, I'm just learning. I'm looking forward to learning and growing in the business. And my hope is to one day be a showrunner. But right now, I'm just about learning and, and honing my craft. So it's, humility. It is letting people know that you will do whatever it takes, even if part of you doesn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Even if what you start at is you just say it like that, you say, I'm here to make your life easier. If that is the mantra of the person that's just breaking in, I'm here to make your life easier. It's not about me. It's about you. I want to make you look good. I can't tell you the people who have succeeded because, and this is true, even if you're at the CEO level, your job is to make the company look good. Mm-hmm. People that really get that what your job is is to make the person above you look good and treat the people who are working for you well. Those are the people that succeed. Yeah. So it's just have that be my mantra. 
how can I make your life easier? How can I make you look good? How can I make your life easier? And I'll do whatever it takes to get it right. Yeah, well, and and I think it bears mentioning that it's not just at the assistant level that that's going to happen. Like, when you're an executive, that needs to be your attitude. It absolutely does, because everybody has a boss. The president of CBS television, Nina Tassler, her boss is Les Moonves. Mm -hmm. She has to make Les look good. She makes a bazillion dollars a year, and she has tremendous power. And her job, to keep her job, is to make Les look good mm-hmm. and to do well by the company. It really just comes down to being a decent person and helping other people. That is huge. Mm-hmm. That is huge. You spend a good portion of the book talking about the bottom level. And there's a mm-hmm. big reason for that. And that's, and that's because that bottom level is where, I mean, it, Anybody, almost anybody, will have to enter. I mean, if you're you're mm-hmm. a lawyer who's been a successful lawyer for ten or fifteen years, and you go to Hollywood wanting a a, a career as a writer, you might have to intern first. You, can I tell you something? Yeah, I know a very successful attorney. For some reason, there's a large percentage of people that are coming into the business as writers who who come from another business. They come from the law. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not entirely sure why, except I think they were English majors who loved <laughs> writing and said, there's no way I'm going to be able to make a living doing that, so I'm going to go to law school. And I know one writer who walked out of the bar. <laughs> she was taking it. No. She said, this isn't for me. Why am I doing this? Wow. Um, anyways, so my friend Ken, he was a successful lawyer but wanted to be a writer. He came here. He worked started as an intern, and he worked for a showrunner. He worked for Neil Bear as mm-hmm. his assistant for a couple of years and then ended up getting on staff yeah. and is moving up the ranks. Yes, and as I say in my book, there's a story of Chris Collins, mm-hmm. who was a successful music promoter, yeah. but realized one day when he was at a private concert, and I can't remember the name of the band, but he found himself falling asleep at this concert that people would kill to be at. Mm -hmm. And he went, this isn't for me. And he came out to Los Angeles. He started working as a temp at HBO. Wow. And was a phenomenal temp. I mean, he he had to sweep floors, but you know what? He swept floors like you couldn't believe. (laughs) And they promoted him to assistant, and the company paid for him to take a class at UCLA to take a course on a producing course Mm -hmm. and all the while he was writing scripts and writing scripts and he ended up being a writer on the wire yeah but his dues was sweeping floors and being a temp and being an assistant when he had come from a job where he had interns and assistants yeah but he made it well in in I think it it also bears mentioning that uh it's not just um, a year or two necessarily at the assistant level. Um, one of the one of the guys I, I interviewed on the on the podcast, Corey Miller. Now mm-hmm. he's a successful writer. He wrote for many years for CSI and and uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of other shows. He actually worked on Lois and Clark as an assistant. He mm-hmm. uh, he was able to write uh, a couple of scripts that got that got produced. So here's a mm-hmm. produced writer with an agent. That's back in like ninety four-ish, and mm-hmm. it took him seven more years as an assistant before he finally yep. got his break to be a staff writer yep. on CSI. You know what? That is not an unheard of story at all. In fact, if you're going to be an assistant, I mean, the, the way in now, the trajectory is that you get a job as a writer's PA mm-hmm. on a show. Then you, if you're lucky and you do that job really well, And here's an example between somebody who did it really well and was rewarded and someone who didn't. There was a PA who, I mean, part of their job is going to get lunch, you know, Mm -hmm. and to stack the cupboards. So what he would do is he totally reorganized the cupboards that had snacks in them so that you could easily tell what was there. 
he made sure that there was always, that the cold sodas were always in the front of the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And he, when the lunch order came, instead of just putting it in the middle of the table, he set it in front of each of the writers, and he made sure that they had silverware. And he was the first person in in the morning, last person out at the end of the day. And people loved him so much that they said to him, are you an aspiring writer? Because usually that's who's at that level. And, mm-hmm. and he said, yes. And they said, we'd be happy to read your material. Wow. And they read his material and they showed it to their agent. And he actually got an agent. And he was able to get into the business that way. Anyways, you started as a writer's PA. And then you move up, if you do that job well, to the assistant to the showrunner or to an assistant to one of the executive producers or co-EPs. You do that job for a year or so very well, and then you get in the room as a writer's assistant. Mm -hmm. And that could be a two- or three-year trajectory there. And you might spend two or three years as a writer's assistant. You might get a script, like you were saying about Corey, but still have to continue working at that level until you get a shot to be on staff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it sounds to somebody outside the industry, the idea that, um, that you're really stocking shelves as you're testing ground for, um, a $150,000 a year job on, on staff <laughs> is, <laughs> I mean, I'm well, really, really, that sounds hubris, but it's, it's, it's the case. That is the case. You know, and the thing that's interesting is if you wanted, and I said this in the book, if you wanted to be a brain surgeon, there's a very specific path to doing that. Yeah. You know, you go to medical school and then you do a residency and then you set up your office, you figure out how to argue with the insurance company, and then you're a brain surgeon. Yeah. In this business, there's many different ways to do it, but this is a, a very well-known and, and established track. Mm-hmm. And you do pay your dues. I mean, I think it's always so interesting, and, and you've interviewed a lot of people, so you know, Greg, mm-hmm. that the media love those overnight success stories, Yeah, uh, but they don't exist. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, maybe one in a million, but mostly what it is is people who've written 30 scripts till they got to the point that somebody read a script and said, wow, this is great. Mm-hmm. It's people that have worked for five years on their material and on on getting coffee, and then their big break happens. And sometimes they like to say, you know, I just came to L.A. and, you know, I was so lucky, but uh, within six months I got a job. And that's, <laughs> that's just not really the case. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, in your book you talk about being prepared for the lucky break, and that preparation yeah. is where all that work comes in. Um, exactly. But let's let's talk a little bit about um, you in your book. You talk about the personal A story and branding yourself, and and yes. over and over again, as I talk to authors and and writers, it seems like <clears throat> um, one of the one of the biggest changes over the last ten years ish is that somebody breaking in, in into the industry now has to be much more of an entrepreneur. Um, yes. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. The reason that you need to be an entrepreneur is that you are your business and people have the notion that if only I get an agent, then everything will come into place. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Your job is to sell yourself and agents are interested in writers who are already networking and have a list of contacts and are selling themselves. When you go into a showrunner meeting, Mm -hmm. your job, is to figure out how to let the showrunner know that you're a story machine, that you have a backlog of stories that go for miles. Mm -hmm. As I say in my book, and as it is true, one of the sins of Hollywood is being boring. Mm -hmm. It's punishable by not being employed, as one executive said. If you're a writer... What you're selling is your ability to tell stories. So you have to have stories. And the most important story is your own story. Mm. And it needs to be compelling and it needs to be memorable because if you have your first round of meetings with executives, they might have in a year, they might meet with 50 aspiring writers. Mm. And in one day, they might meet with five writers or six writers or seven. And 
when they leave at the end of the day, if you're the person that said, you know what, I grew up on a farm, but I was determined to work in Hollywood and be a writer, so I did correspondence courses, I did online courses, and I I have written 50 scripts, then that's what she's going to remember. Or, as one of my writers at CBS, you know, he his parents were both ministers, and he he survived growing up in a mega church <laughs> in the South. That's the kind of thing that when the executive is talking to her friend, the agent, or talking to a producer, she could say, you know what, I met with this guy, he was so interesting. His parents were ministers, and he he grew up in one of those, you know, churches that have thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. And that's how everybody sort of needs a handle to be remembered by. Yeah. So I'm not sure that that answers your question, except it is such a competitive marketplace, and you have to make yourself memorable. People have to remember who you are because when they sit down to think, who do I... I mean, talent is the beginning. Clearly, you have to have talent. But then it's about positioning yourself in the marketplace. Well, and I, I know every staff is different, but I, I often ask writers about um, what their staffs are like. And it comes back to me over and over and over again that they spend the first hour of every day just talking about their weekend or talking about news or, or politics or, or whatever before they get down to writing. And so obviously they, they, they have to believe that you're going to be an enjoyable person to be around. Yes. What showrunner said often is you read a writer's material to see if you are a fan of it, if you feel like they can do the work. And then you meet with them first to make sure that they're not psycho serial killers they're not crazy people. Hmm. And then, are they people that, as one person said, that you want to be in a submarine with for 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day? And people who who have rich lives? Hmm. What's happening now is, and often people say, well, I'm not 22. Will I be able to get a job on a show? If you've had a rich life that you can call on, those are the kinds of people that, many showrunners are looking to hire hmm. because they need to have a a well of material as opposed to just, I've been watching television since I was eight years old and I know every show that's on television. Hmm. It's about putting together a cast almost. The same way that you cast television series, yeah. you sort of cast a writing room. Very, very cool. And uh, I, just on the topic of the, the ideas and, and coming in with a wealth of ideas, I know... Uh, Everybody, everybody talked about how Stephen J. Kennell um, had so many shows on the air, it just one after another after another. But I remember an interview with him where he talked about how when he, he went in to pitch a new show, he would have 10 to 12 fully fleshed out episodes. Yeah. This is just pitching a show. <laughs> yes. Stephen Cannell spoke at the Showrunner Training Program, and I do this thing called the Showrunner Legacy Series, mm -hmm. which is we do videos of very effective showrunners, and they're available at the uh, WGA library. You can mm -hmm. go and you can watch them. Our first one was Alan Ball, who, which is wonderful, and then the one that we're just editing right now is Jeff Melvoin, again, the, the man who created the Showrunner Program. Mm -hmm. But I came up with this idea because Stephen would come and speak at the class, and he was such a font of invaluable wisdom and mm. information. And he was my first subject for the legacy video, and it was the year that he got sick, unfortunately. But, oh. but anyway, Stephen would also talk about when he would pitch those same, you know, when he'd pitch a series, he pitched the full pitch ten times. His family, and he pitched it to his family, to his friends, to his colleagues. If he would be coming down the hall, his writers knew, okay, he's getting ready for a pitch. He's going to pitch it to us. <laughs> and he would get feedback so that when he went into a room to pitch, he knew the pitch forwards and backwards and up and down. And any question anybody would ask, he would be able to answer. And as you said, he had a number of episodes fully fleshed out. So he was really clear where the series would go. Mm. And I'll, I'll tell your listeners a, a very fun inside tip from Stephen Cannell. 
uh-huh. when he would pitch, he would never sit in the sofa or the chair. Often when you sat on the sofa in a meeting, the sofa, you'd be lower to the ground than everybody else. Mm. What he did is he perched on the arm of the couch or a chair. Interesting. And he would get up and he would walk around the room and he would make eye contact with people. So he could see if somebody's mind was wandering, he would sort of get a little closer to them and direct the conversation at them. So I always thought that was a terrific idea, is that you don't settle down into your chair. You kind of, you perch so that if you want to move around, you can. Wow. I, I, I love, I love those tips. Like, like the tip of, uh, when you're at a cocktail party, hold your drink in your left hand so that you're, 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 the hand you shake hands with is not cold and clammy. That is great. That is great. <laughs> and he, and he, here's another one speaking about, uh, holding your drink in your hand. Uh-huh. Make sure you don't have too many of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One to loosen you up, but, uh, but I've seen people at networking events or parties. They were so nervous that they had too many drinks, and they didn't remember it in the morning. It wasn't good for them. Yeah. Oh, and and one tip I saw on Twitter, um, Eric Haywood, uh, director Eric Haywood, just tweeted today to make sure that when you're you're pitching to showrunners or or executives or anybody, that you always afterwards write down the names of every single person that that was in that meeting, because yeah. three years later, <laughs> they might be somebody really important and uh, you need to remember when you when you met them absolutely as a matter of fact when i was at cbs i started as the lowest person on the totem pole in the room Mm -hmm. and these guys would come in and they would say each time nice to meet you and i would think excuse me you've been into pitch three times you've met me three times (laughs) so here's a tip which is just shake somebody's hand, no matter how low they are on the totem pole, make eye contact and say, nice to see you. Now, they may have met you for the first time, but it's still acceptable to say nice to see you. And if, in fact, they've already met you before, mm-hmm. then it looks like they're graciously remembering you. <laughs> Very cool. Cool. Well, um, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit and uh, talk about Social media. You mentioned a few things in your book about social media. Uh, one in particular is being careful what's uh, what's incriminating on your social media. But, uh, but how does yes. social media play into this this game plan? Well, that is a great question, and you are a wizard at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the good news is that today you can get to almost anyone through Facebook. Mm-hmm. and other social media networking, you can, something I recommend that people do is write a fan letter to a low-level person on a show, mm-hmm. or even, you know, at the story editor level, doing fan emails to the showrunner and the co-EPs, but nobody's paying attention to the story editor or, or the staff writer. So mm-hmm. if you see their name on an episode that you like, reach out to them, reach out to them, you know, on their Facebook page and say, that was amazing. So that is one way. The other certainly is to get the word out about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Blogging, as you well know, is a fantastic way for people to find out who you are and what your writing style is like. If you have a unique voice that's coming through, Mm -hmm. I think that just knowing who the players are today is one of the the big pluses of it. And I think you use it. And I also think, as I said, that just check out your profile pictures and, and make sure that the pictures that are on your Facebook or on your other home pages are professional enough that if somebody, just because, as you know, hmm. before uh, you're going to meet with an executive or a showrunner, they're going to search you online. Yeah. So make sure that, that where they search is someplace that you want them to see you at. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually got a couple of stories myself. Um, one to your first point is, uh, uh, there was a writer on Chuck when I was doing the Chuck podcast and she'd been in, in the business for about 20 years and had mm-hmm. been on some pretty big, big shows before that. And, uh, she wrote a particularly poignant episode. And, um, and so I gathered together a bunch of, of fan letters, um, and then, put them in a bundle and sent them to her. And I I got an email from her and she said she was crying because she had 
not once ever received a fan letter. Wow. And it it just hit me how much they like the showrunner gets all the glory. All the glory. <laughs> and the the lowly staff writers, who might even be like a co executive producer level, um, don't get recognized. And I think you can't underestimate um, these people. These are people who will be the showrunner in two or three years. They will. And these are people who, if you reach out to them on Twitter, you reach out to them through Facebook, they yep. they just might sit down with you for coffee. They just might um, enter a dialogue with you. And uh, even on the podcast, I, I I can't think of a percentage, but I I think most of the interviews that I get now are people that I've just randomly reached out to on Facebook or Twitter. You're absolutely correct. The only other tip that I recommend that people follow, and I'm sure you you would recommend this and you do it yourself, is that start to see if you can have an authentic connection first. Mm-hmm. Have a couple of interchanges back and forth and, and see if you have anything in common before you say, can I take you out to coffee? Mm-hmm. You know, Or will you read my script? I, I would say never give anybody your script on the first or second encounter you've had, or maybe even third. I have a funny story about that, by the way. Mm-hmm. So establish a real connection, and then those people, and they're very open to it, because as you said, nobody is acknowledging them. Mm-hmm. Alan Ball is the one who's getting all the attention, not Alex Wu. So it's a terrific way. It's a terrific way to connect with people. Yep. Very, very cool. And and one thing I definitely do want to hit as, as well is... Um, We've, we've talked a lot about, and your book talks a lot about, understandably, the, the bottom level. Um, but the advice in the game plan is also very applicable for when you're already in and moving up the ranks. You mentioned about the full court press when you when you got into Amblin uh, and yeah. how, how that was crucial in you getting that job. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, that's in a chapter called Find a Mentor and Treat Her Right mm-hmm. because nobody makes it in this town by themselves. It just doesn't happen. You need, you need almost, to paraphrase, you need a village of people on your behalf calling and putting the word out and saying great things about you and recommending you. So the way that I was called from Amblin was that I had a friend who's, had a friend whose wife was working in the feature department and I had met her at a party and we had hit it off, and when they were starting to look for somebody, my name was on the list. Kathleen and I had a great meeting, but I knew that she was talking to other people and that she may well have had great meetings with other people. So then I activated my <laughs> my mentors, mm-hmm. and what I did is I, Bill Haber was head of CAA, he was one of the heads of CAA, and I met him at CBS because mm-hmm. he was coming and pitch. Everybody was so deferential to him, and I actually wasn't necessarily very... I, I was funny, and, and I certainly respected him, but I didn't bow before him like everybody else did. And he was somebody who I knew had a relationship with Kathy. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I had one shot with him to ask his help. And so I called him, and I said, I'm up for this job. When you talk to Kathy, will you put in a good word for me? He said, I would love to do that. Mm. So they had lunch. He told her how much CAA was behind me, which is always a plus. And I'm sure that was a huge determining factor. Now, when he did that and when I got the job, the way that I thanked him was, unlike most of his clients, many of who are obscenely wealthy and sending him phenomenal gifts, I sent him a hundred dollars worth of junk food because I knew he loved junk food, uh, but I put it in a beautiful basket and he was blown away by it. It made uh, him laugh and, uh-huh. um, and it was the right, really personal thing to do. Yeah. Very cool. And, and, uh, one, one thing that I will mention from Linda Buzzle's book, the whole idea of chutzpah, um, and yeah. doing, doing something that's just different and unique and, and memorable is so important. It, it, it's having the courage. You know, it is chutzpah. And, and in the book, I talk about a writer who had who had done his thesis at USC on Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. And he was 
driving home and he saw that there was a movie being shot. Yeah. And he got out of the car and he found out that it was a Robert Altman film. And he said, I'm, I studied Robert Altman. Can, can I, is there any chance I could come and observe on the set? And that took Chutzpah to do that. Yeah. And he got on the set and then he was on the set for a couple of days and he said, is there any way that I could meet Mr. Altman? Because my thesis uh, was on him. Mm-hmm. And that took Chutzpah and he got a meeting with Robert and he just continued that relationship by being proactive, not asking for too much, but they ended up having a relationship, you know, business relationship, and Robert was a huge supporter of his. It takes chutzpah, it's a great word that she has, and it, it's a great word, it just means courage and vivacity and taking a risk, because you know what, you have nothing to lose. Hmm. You, if, if you don't take a risk, nothing will happen. So you might as well take a risk. Very, very cool. Well, that that is actually a great place to end up. But before we end, um, I want to give you a chance. Is there any kind of breaking in tip that you think that you would want to leave people with? You know, the thing that I would leave people with is something that we touched on, which is if you can make your mantra, how can I make your life easier? let me help you, then that will get you so far, you wouldn't believe it. You know, assuming that that you have talent and, and perseverance is really important, but that attitude of I'm here to help, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm here to help, I'll do whatever it takes. That's going to open doors for people. Very, very cool. Well, um, and I and I do want to mention that uh, as much as we've talked about some some great stuff in this interview, it is not a replacement for buying your book, Hollywood Game Plan. <laughs> Thank you. Highly recommended. Um, Thank and and I do and I do mention and we've talked about this also by Linda Buzzell's book. It is still very very helpful. Um, how it's to make it in book. Hollywood? Great great yeah. book. But if you want something that's current, this uh, Hollywood Game Plan is very very current for exactly what you need to get into the industry right now. Thanks. Very, very cool. So uh, best of luck to you, and uh, thank you so much for, for being so gener- generous with your time. And, and really, thank you so much for being one of the people that helps people get into the industry. I'm sure that you've got a long line of people who are, are very, 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 very thankful and will be uh, getting longer and longer. <laughs> well, I love doing it. Thank you. Thanks, Walker. This was fun. Cool. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web.